the labor market is undergoing massive change. Maybe you've experienced this firsthand. Automization and economic recession pose a threat to permanent employment of millions of people. Jobs are lost, and new ones are not necessarily created. And those of us who still have a job are increasingly working under new and more unstable conditions. Short-term contracts and freelance work are gaining ground. They call it the gig economy. In fact, as a freelancer, I'm a part of this rapidly evolving way of working. And there's also talk of a platform economy, where transactions are now made online, diminishing the need for many old-fashioned physical jobs. Add to that the pandemic and the changes that COVID-19 has imposed on our working lives. So in the future, will we lose even more jobs to technology? Is it at all possible to reestablish growth as we knew it? Will decent, steady pay become a rarity? Or to put it another way, will we be able to have normal working lives without too much insecurity? In the Nordic welfare states, the question of social security has always been a central point of politics. And Finnish experts have recently carried out groundbreaking experiments to tackle increasing job insecurity all over the world. In this episode, we'll seek both Finnish answers and global predictions to the question, what is the future of work? I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. Probably the best way to predict what the future of work is going to be is to look at the recent past and to imagine that trends will probably continue after the recovery from the corona crisis, which may itself take quite a long time. And what that means is that um, in slow growing economies, um, workers are going to be more insecure at you know different points in the income scale. People are going to find that their work conditions are precarious, that work becomes more temporary or that more people are finding work in the platform economy. And that that situation is, um, yeah, that that, that that will be very dissatisfying for people and it will contribute to further increases in inequality. This is Aaron Beninov. He's a researcher at Humboldt University of Berlin. He's participating in this online Nordic Talks event, live stream from the Hankin School of Economics in Helsinki as a part of the annual Responsible Organizing Stakeholder Conference. Aaron's current research focuses on unemployment and how to help people make the best use of their skills in the global economy. I don't think that AI or, you know, new automation technologies are really to blame for that situation. I think it It's a trend that predates these new technologies, and um, it's also much worse in parts of the world that are sort of more behind in developing those kinds of things. We have a very large global informal sector, for example, that can't really be blamed on the existence of these uh, new technologies. So I would say that in large part, not 100% of the story, but in large part, the recent past is the best guide to the future of work. In a little while, Aaron will share more long-term predictions. But first, let's hear about the near future. Maya Matila is a researcher at the Kalevi Sorsa Foundation, a social democratic think tank based in Helsinki. 
Her research focuses on social inequalities, democracy, and on workers' rights in the platform economy. She's the right person to tell us if we're all going to become gig workers in the coming years. I mean, that's what they say, but what we also see is polarization of work, and it's said that some people will uh, kind of fall back to the gig working, especially in the service sector, but then there will be people who are able to keep up to the technological changes and also uh, keep up to their uh, working conditions, uh, mainly in the professional vocations. I agree with Aaron, and I also get the point about the recent past. If you look at, for example, the platform economy, especially and platform companies, uh, I think the disruptive power that is going on there is really not so much, uh, partly, of course, on the technological level, that you have new technologies and you have the apps and people are made work through apps and people's work is monitored very closely through these apps, even though it's said that this work is extremely flexible, but actually it's monitored to the smallest detail. But I think the real disruption is in the way uh, that some of these platform companies act in terms of uh, workers' ability to, for example, collectively bargain their work conditions. Uh, Because not all platform companies, but there certainly is platform work where people are made work as entrepreneurs, sole entrepreneurs, as partners or freelancers, even though they should be employed. And this is a way to ultimately make the workers quite weak in relation to the companies because they cannot collectively bargain their working conditions, including wages, holidays, sick pay. They have to pay into their own pensions and the platform companies are not contributing to that and working hours as well. So I think this is the real disruptive power, but I'm not deterministic about it. It's about political decisions that we do, uh, and they really um, have a big impact on what will ultimately happen in the future. Another problem of our time is that the jobs that are lost these days are relatively good jobs. This is pointed out by Signe Jauhjainen, a senior researcher at the Social Insurance Institution of Finland. Change in the labor market is going on and the vanishing jobs are actually quite good jobs uh, compared, for example, to the mechanization of agriculture when physically demanding jobs were replaced by the technology. But nowadays, relatively good jobs are replaced by the technology and that's one thing that makes this change quite difficult. In Cigna's opinion, there's room for new thinking in the labor market. And that might just come in the form of universal basic income. Universal basic income is a proposed government-guaranteed payment that each citizen receives. It's also called the citizen's income, guaranteed minimum income, or simply basic income. The intention behind the payment is to cover the basic cost of living, and provide financial security for every citizen. The concept is also seen as a way to offset job losses caused by technology. And as Maya said, there is going on this kind of polarization in the labor market that the number of middle-income jobs decline. And in this type of setting, universal basic income can be seen as one solution that would 
sort of support individuals that have low security in the labor market, low income, uh, gig jobs. So the universal basic income would create some kind of basis for the the income. But isn't the introduction of universal basic income incredibly expensive? Where should all this money come from? Currently in the in the Finnish setting, if if we would introduce basic income, that would be adequate. The monthly amount would be adequate for for everybody. It would mean about a thousand or thousand and two hundred euros per month. And this type of basic income would be impossible at the moment. It is too expensive. It would mean really high marginal tax rates. So those basic income models that have been introduced in the, in the Finnish public debate are sort of partial basic income models that the actual basic income would be smaller amount compared for example to the current minimum benefits such as uh, unemployment benefits and then uh, we would still need some top ups so the housing allowance and uh, social assistance so in this type of model it m- might be possible Maya agrees that, to some extent, there can be good things about introducing universal basic income. But it's necessary to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. I think the reason why so many people are fond of the idea of universal basic income is that it's supposed to make it easier for people to have a certain level of income uh, in the very insecure world that, that we live in. But I think the problem with the universal basic income is that I don't like the fact that some people are advocating for UBI based on the fact that wages will be lower. I don't I don't like the idea that we are paying basic income and at the same time accepting the fact, and it doesn't have to be a fact, but accepting the same time that wages will be dumped. That's a problem because it is going to be costly as social benefits are, but we have to think of where the money will come from. And when we think about the platform economy at the same time, what I was saying before earlier, that many platform firms make people work without employment status. And that means that these platform firms are not employers. And that means that they are not paying into the social security system as employers, as for example, in Finland at the moment, one third of the income in the social benefit system comes from employers. Now, if we are at the same time advocating for kind of a working life where people work as solo entrepreneurs and not employees, we are kind of giving up on the share of employers that they are paying into the system. And if we are advocating UBI, uh, because we are seeing that wages are going to be dumped, I think we are going into a very vicious circle where we we don't have enough money for the social benefit system, whether it's UBI or any other system. And the wages are going down when we don't have enough tax money from earned income. Uh, and eventually the UBI won't live up because there is not money coming in. So the big question that we have to ask is how do we get money from the companies and from the profits that companies make? Aaron thinks that we need to see things from a broader perspective and understand the fundamental challenges at hand. He thinks that the root of the problem dates back to the 80s and 90s 
and that government interventions are needed if we want to turn the tide. It seems to me that the big problem we face is really a problem of economic stagnation that's been very difficult to to deal with, both from the perspective of governments trying to fund their welfare states, from the perspective of workers trying to um, get a job, and even from the perspective of corporations trying to figure out how to make investments. And I think that's why what we've seen in the past 40 years, maybe less in Finland than in other countries, is that governments are just doing, you know, basically giving up on benefits and kind of like doing more austerity and encouraging workers to take jobs that are more insecure. Um, So I think that that bigger story, which isn't really a story to my mind about brilliant new technologies, but about a long-term process of stagnation and how hard it's made it for um, workers to adapt. It kind of benefits companies and, and it benefits rich people certainly, but in a way that's discouraging them from investing and so in a way, I think, you know, there's a, there's a kind of problem, I'm guessing, saying with the technology focus of the story that we kind of get in a way from the perspective mainstream economics adopts with respect to these trends. And in a sense, I guess what I'm saying is that I think that the, the only way to solve these problems is with a lot more public investment rather than a UBI. We need we need that basis of um, a, a basically nonprofit based investment in order to um, turn the situation around. If I can just jump in at this point. This is Maya. I I tend to agree with Aaron on the issue that if we don't solve the big issue of the stagnating production and low investment rates, I think we are going to be in trouble and we can't fix it with UBI or any other that kind of solutions that don't really go into the roots of the problem. Uh, I think one question is that we have to be able to talk about inequality because now we need investments. And the story that that has been told over and over again is that we need wealth to accumulate because in that way we will have investments. But what's happening right now, to my understanding, is that the wealth is accumulating, but it's not really being invested in real economy, but it's being invested in bonds or or things that don't really keep keep up the, the economy. And I think uh, that's a big issue. So inequality is not just the issue of of like soft politics or or social policies, but it's a very big issue in terms of economic activity overall in the society. As if all the challenges that Aaron, Maya, and Signa have mentioned were not enough, we're also dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, complicating things even more. But what exactly has the pandemic meant for our work culture and labor market in general? I think it had maybe made visible some of the inequalities that exist in the world of work. For example, if you look at the service sector workers, they are not able to stay at home and uh, work from home and be safe from the virus, but they have to go to, to their workplace and subject themselves to the threat of the virus, uh, as well as, of course, care workers in elderly homes and, and also in, in daycare. This is a, one aspect that has become visible, really. And I think that a lot of in the public discussion is about, you know, I have to be at home all day working here. Oh, it's so tough. And uh, I don't see people at office and things like that. But it's not really that tough. I think it's tougher to go out and be afraid for your health and your, your family's health. Uh, so it's really just become more visible, the inequality in the, in the working life. 
But has this trend also had an effect on the gig or platform economy? A little over a year ago, when the pandemic came to Finland, I gave an interview to this Ules English podcast about uh, what will what's going on with uh, food couriers now. And I was saying that, okay, maybe they actually their position is not that bad because they are having work because people are now more and more ordering food, take away food to home. So there's work for these couriers. And at the time I was worried about the fact that these people, the couriers have to face people when they come to people's homes and they give out the food, then there will be, you know, contacts with other, other people's. But that was quite quickly solved in a way that you just they just leave the food outside the door. But but it d- depends on sector. The platform economy is not one sector, but there are different sectors uh, uh, within the platform economy. So if you, for example, look at uh, home cleaning, I think they might be in bigger trouble than food careers, for example. Um, and then if you look at, for example, online platform work, uh, of course, that can be still done at home, regardless of the pandemic. Aaron thinks that COVID-19 has revealed the lack of investments in public infrastructure. I agree with a lot of what Maya said. I think that it revealed not only the inequalities that have grown over the past few decades, but also the lack of investment, maybe especially in the U.S., but in the U.K. and across a lot of Western Europe as well, um, and across the world in, in health infrastructure and just the neglect and austerity of, you know, keeping, you know, to live in a world where more and more people are traveling internationally and more and more people are eating meat is a world that is going to generate these pandemics and to kind of increase that so-called tail risk without investing in the public infrastructure that you need to deal with something like this was a real blow. I think that, that a lot of people, um, recognized. I think also that from my perspective, um, it's likely that in the future, we will see as in the past, another one of these people are calling it a K-shaped recovery, where um, the the kind of wealthier groups in society sort of recover their incomes and resume growth more quickly. And those not just at the bottom, but really, you know, large section of society um, sees a much longer and slower sort of jobless recovery where it takes a long time for um, for people who've lost their jobs, some portion of that to find jobs. I think it's very likely that we'll see obviously some kind of post-pandemic boom just as the economy sort of partially recovers from the effects of um, what's happened. But I, I'm much less optimistic than some economists in the recent months that um, there won't be any scarring of the economy and that, you know, somehow the economy is just going to bounce back. It, it implies that um, the economy was much healthier in the past than than it was. I think, as Cigna said, the last decade was already a decade of stagnation and slow productivity growth. Um, the past trends don't really imply very strong, healthy economy. And I think that the idea that um, the pandemic's only going to increase uncertainty, then un- in- make the investment climate more unclear, um, which means that, the, again, that's why I said in a way that um, at the beginning that I think the best guide to the future is the recent past. According to Cigna, COVID-19 has shown that many people have the ability to adapt to change. It has been really interesting that the labor market has actually been in the really focus of the public debate during the 
pandemic, we have been talking about different types of jobs and working from home and the risks that uh, different workers face in, in their work. And maybe uh, also the pandemic has, has somehow affected our work. And I think this uh, in this pandemic, we have discovered that actually individuals and, and households and firms adapt to new restrictions and new new models of of work and we have learned for example we have learned to wear face masks and then we have learned to organize online conferences and i think this kind of adaptation tells a story that there is a potential in the labor market that we can find new new tools and new ways to interact And I also think that the uh, role of social benefits and welfare state has been quite important during this pandemic and it has gained support. People probably think that it's a good thing that we have these social benefits to secure the income of, in the case of unemployment or, or some shorter period of no income or no work. So I think the support of welfare state has increased. What if we put aside all these political decisions and structural frameworks for just a moment and focus on ourselves? Is there anything that we can do as citizens to promote a more secure job market? Let's hear from Maya first. Well, I'm a political scientist, so through politics, uh, not just party politics, but also through activism. And I'm not so much for doing individual choices as consumers. Of course, it can have a meaning for you personally to make choices, uh, wise choices as a consumer. But I think that things are changed through politics and party politics, uh, politics in institutions, but also through activism and different kind of political um, activities. Let's hear from Signa. I think that uh, participating in the public debate from the responsible basis, so introducing different kind of responsible initiatives or ideas in the public debate, I think it's it's really important since there are, are different kind of interest groups in the in the public debate. So and I think there is still space or interest for different kind of responsible ideas. And then for the changing working life, I think it's important for all of us to support sort of uh, continuous learning, lifelong learning and, and accumulating not not wealth, but human capital in, in our workplaces so, so that individuals would be better prepared for, for the future and for the change in the, in the labor market. And finally, Aaron. A growing part of the population, in fact, uh, is becoming aware that, you know, trying to keep one's head down and just make the, you know, do the best one can as an individual is leading to a lot of frustration. And people talk a lot about like burnout, you know, burnout from from trying so hard to make a life in an environment of insecurity and where the opportunities have been declining. So I think that there's a real hope from the fact that, um, So many people are, are realizing that, you know, there has to be some kind of collective conversation, collective movement, collective struggles around the situation that, that, that waiting for things to get better 
has, you know, not generated the expected returns. And so I think that that, in a way, um, I'm sure anyone tuning into this is because they're they're interested in precisely those kinds of questions about, you know, how to make a better future. And um, I think that that's a very promising thing that at least in my in my case, I think 20 years ago, if you said, ah, you have to involve yourself and be part of the public change, people would say, well, very few people are doing that. So it's not going to really do much. But I think that now, in a sense, some of these collective action problems are being solved. More people are involved. And that means that if you're involved, you can make a real difference. And so I think that all of those different dimensions of political change um, are things that are really on the horizon and that the future is very radically open at this point. Well, I think that's an interesting point from Aaron that the situation might open for a more collective way of thinking in the future. For me personally, the COVID-19 pandemic has radically changed the way I work. It's forced me to evolve my skills and seek previously unexplored opportunities. But if we scale this change up to a societal level, the picture becomes even more complex. That's why we need strong public debate and political decisions in defining the future of work. If you want to arrange your own Nordic Talks event, you can read more at nordictalks.com. I'm Afton Halloran, and thanks for listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. <laughs>